0: You are watching or listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for another edition of the Hashtag FEM Doctor Series is Dr. Betsy Greenleaf. She's a urogynecologist and a doctor of integrative medicine in New Jersey. She is also the host of the podcast, Some of Your Parts. Welcome, Betsy.
1: Hey, so thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. This is great. Well, thank you for saying
0: yes. And I should probably tell people that we are a bit familiar with each other because we've um, crossed paths in other venues and become friends. And I've actually used you used your services. So we can talk a little bit more about that at some point. But thank you for saying yes. Yeah. (laughs) So let's um, start, I guess, in the beginning. Tell me, did you always want to be a
1: doctor? You know, how (laughs) did you do that? You know, it's funny because I, I look back at it and I there was always definitely an interest in medicine because I was probably like five years old when my mom was pregnant with my sister. And I remember at that time there were these books that she had on pregnancy and I was obsessed with looking at the books. And they were like, you know, they were drawn like these black and white drawings with a baby like upside down in the uterus. And I remember being like really obsessed with reading these books at, when I was like five years old. Uh, And then right around the time, this is like, we're talking like the 70s, there was a TV show called Emergency. And it was about this like ambulance company in California. And as a as a small child, like I love that show. Like looking back at it now as a parent, I don't know if I would have let my kid watch (laughs) that some show like that when they were like that young. But so there was always this this interest in medicine. uh, But I didn't really think that I I always joke that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew grew up and I still don't. So I'm constantly still figuring it out. And even when I went to college, I was very interested in, I, uh, I, Studied biology. And I was very interested in just the science. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh shit, got to graduate. Now what? And I was like, I got to pick what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, ah, I can't decide between being a veterinarian or being a people doctor. And I was kind of like back and forth. So I just applied everywhere. I applied to veterinary school. I applied to medical school. I applied for a PhD program in genetics, Wow. Well, you,
0: you would at least had limited it to the sciences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I got it. And then interesting enough, being in the state of New Jersey, there is no veterinary school. And so what happens is if if you really wanted to get into veterinary school, you need to go live in another state and reapply. Like I have a girlfriend of mine who applied 12 times before she got in. Um, but I got into medical school and then same thing. I went to I went to medical school and, you know, there were those people in medical school that were like, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon from the day that they walk into school. And I just knew I wanted to help people and I was interested in medicine. So I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And, you know, people always ask me, how do you end up as a urogynecologist? I didn't like one day like, wake up and be like, Oh, I want to look at vaginas all day long. <laughs> it was definitely not part of the plan, but you know, when you go through medicine you're going through your rotations, you see so much, you become desensitized. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember there one time in residency, I'm sitting at the lunch table in the hospital and I have a friend who's a podiatrist. And I just said to her, I was like, Oh my God, how do you look at nasty feet all day long? And she like almost choked on her meal because she looked up at me and she was like, "Are you are you serious? You're <laughs> asking me this right now?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah I forgot what I do." <laughs> so-
0: yeah, I don't know. I think I would rather look at vaginas to be honest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I know.
0: Yeah. So- well, I mean, I'm curious how that sort of evolved, though. And a lot of people probably don't even know that a Euro gynecologist is even a thing. So maybe you could even explain to us so, what that is.
1: So this was the other problem is here. I finally graduate. Same thing. I go to medical school. I graduate. Now I'm a doctor. And then it's like, OK, now you got to pick what kind of doctor do you want to be? And I like. I would go through my rotations and I would rate them. Like, I really like this one. I don't like this one. I really like, and I, so I was narrowing it down and I narrowed it down to, I really liked general surgery. I really liked gynecology and I really liked urology. Well, at that time, I did, you know, this was kind of stupid, but at the time I really didn't think about urology because there were not any female urology, role models. And so it was really a very male heavy field when it comes to like what they did for people. And then also like the doctors that I, that I saw. And so I kind of was like, yeah, I don't know if men would feel comfortable with penile issues coming to me. So I kind of was like, all right, urology is out. And I actually went into general surgery before I did obstetrics, and I got halfway through that that residency, and then I was like, I missed the relationship with people. I really wanted to be able to talk to people and really connect with them. And so that was the funny thing because I'd be going around like, and this is no insult to my general surgeon colleagues, but basically general surgeon, a really good general surgeon is like a body mechanic. They get in, they fix things, they get out, you know? And I That's was a like, description. I was the person who was like walking around doing our rounds and I'm like talking to the people. Like, how do you feel now that your gallbladder's out? Like, how do you feel that like your appendix is missing? Are you okay? Like, do you want to talk about it? And like that just wasn't happening. Um, and so the, the stage- surgeons really don't do that. No, no. It's their body mechanics in out, which is good because you also don't want to get that attached to your patients because in general surgery, there's, a there's more, there's more death and morbidity. And so you don't want to, you, they, you, they kind of want that separation of emotion. You know, you yeah. got to get in, get the work done. Don't get attached, you know, it's a good thing, but with obstetrics and gynecology, you have that relationship. So then I switched into gynecology and I did my rotations. I, I did my training in that and it was great, but I still missed a lot of the surgical stuff because when we were doing our training, our training was really heavy on, on the obstetrics and delivering the babies. And that was fun and everything, but I also like to sleep. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not a person that deals well with sleep deprivation. And I I mean, look at, look at your obstetricians. I will tell you, look at any of them. They don't age well.
0: And that's because
1: they're chronically sleep deprived because babies come at all times of the night. I mean, one of the ones I know in my hospital, he's probably the best OBGYN I've ever known. He like eats, lives, breathes. He's in the hospital all the time. He looks 20 years older than what he really is. Um, So, so I really, you know, partially I like sleep and I like to do, like to do the surgery. Um, I didn't find out about urogynecology until my very last rotation in residency. And then this light bulb went off and I was like, oh my God, this combined all the things that I was looking for. It's, you know, I get to have the relationship with the patients. I get to do the surgery, you know, I get to do urology. So it was, it was all that combined. And interesting enough, I mean, urogynecology is a very new specialty. It didn't even really exist until the 1970s. And it didn't become a board certified Specialty until the mid 2000s, um, and I was lucky enough to actually become the first board certified doctor in New Jersey, and then the first female uh, board certified urogynecologist in the United States because I was able to take um, the exam like right away as soon as it pretty much happened. So, what do you have to do to be
0: board certified? Is it just taking an exam, or do you also have to have a special residency?
1: Too. Well, yeah. So usually, so with urogynecology, and there's only 1500 of us in the country, you know, anybody who's listening, if you are in New Jersey, you're probably in the most populated area. Because when I first came out in training, there was maybe six of us in the whole state. Now there's about like 40 mm-hmm. of us, but there's whole states that don't even have one. When you go out to like, you know, the Dakotas, There, are, some of them don't even have one urogynecologist in the whole state. So uh, usually it's either, so you do medical school, residency, and your residency is either in obstetrics and gynecology or you do a residency in urology. And then you do additional training in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. That's the official name of urogynecology, but nobody likes to say that because it's way too long. Yeah. So, um, and then you end up doing another two to three years of that training. And then you're, you can sit for the boards and the boards. It depends on how, like the boards I took, we, ours were oral boards, which was a little, a little scary. Because, I was going to say that does sound scary. Yeah. You know, cause you're sitting in front of this panel of people and you know, you go into this flight or fight cause you're like, Oh my God. And they ask you your name and you're like, uh, you know, because there's so much pressure on you having yeah. to answer questions, but basically they sit there and for hours, I think it's like an eight hour exam it's it's exhausting and you wow. answer questions and you have to, you have to supply these case records and you have to submit a paper and everything. Um, is it almost like defending a PhD dissertation? Pretty much, pretty much. And then the, that's one of the the processes because, um, and then there's another process where the, so I'm a DO, which is a doctor of osteopathic medicine. There's two kinds of doctors in the state United States that can practice medicine, do surgery and prescribe um, medications. And that's MDs and DOs. And everyone's always confused about You know they hear MD all the time, and they say MDs are the real doctors, and everybody else is not. Yeah, but it really has to do with where you graduated from school, and everyone gets confused. But I say, you know, when you go to a dentist, you don't say that somebody with a DDS degree is a real doc dentist versus somebody with a DMD degree. So it's really part of it is where you graduated from. Part of it, the, the um. The DOs originally, uh, the osteopathic doctors, it was a little bit of a a mindset change with how they trained. The history is that um, Andrew T. Still, who was an MD back in the 1800s, was watching a lot of people die from medications at that time because a lot of medications had mercury. And so there was no FDA at this point in time. So he looked into, well, let's figure out a way to get the body to heal itself. And he developed this process of looking at the whole body from head to toe. So that's kind of a little bit more of the philosophy where DOs tend to look at like whole body medicine, where in general, in the past, MDs, yeah, kind of were like, all right, well, I'm your heart doctor versus I'm your stomach doctor. And every yeah. heart was different. That's changing nowadays. Everything's becoming more holistic. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I can kind of did you intentionally
0: become a DO or was it just happened to be that's where you got into school?
1: You know what? It's so it was interesting. When you apply for medical school, um it, it got expensive, you'd apply, yeah. you put your application in and it was like $150 each school to apply. Then you'd get through the first round of applications. And now they're like, okay, it's another $150 to do your second round of application. And I kind of got tired of spending the money. So New Jersey at the time, it was $50 for the second round. And that automatically let you apply to all three medical schools in the state. And so two of the schools were uh, allopathic or MD, and one of the schools was was osteopathic or DO. And I didn't even really know what a DO was at that point in time. I was just like, all right, $50, and I get to apply for all three schools. Fine, check it. Here here you go. And so I, I ended up getting into the osteopathic school. And, um, and then I was like, well, this is actually works out better because this is kind of more my philosophy anyway, more holistic philosophy. So well, I feel like holistic, it
0: probably has been around a long time, but at least my level of awareness, it's, it's definitely become a lot more popular in recent years. So it sounds like you might've been a little bit ahead of your time. Were you or was holistic medicine a big thing even, you know, whatever, like 20, 30 years ago?
1: You know, I think it's it's kind of, it's interesting. I mean, in the, the osteopathic world, it's always been there, but it's just people don't know what osteopaths are. Like, in fact, there's a lot of people who are like, don't even know that they their doctor may be a DO and they don't even know. Like, it actually became a big thing that recently with uh, when Trump had coronavirus, it got in the news because his doctor was a DO and somebody on um, uh, one of the news agencies erroneously made the comment, like, why is he seeing a DO? Why doesn't he go to a real doctor? And it blew up in the news for a while. So I think, you know, um, in general, There's not as many DOs, so I think for many people, I think DOs are always trained more holistically, so there's not as many of us, so people might not be as as aware of this holistic idea of medicine, but then also you've seen probably in the last 10 years, The MDs just getting really frustrated with the tools that they have and saying like, you know what, these tools are not working for us. Mm -hmm. And they kind of transitioning more into this idea of integrative medicine, functional medicine, lifestyle medicine, and going into this more holistic area. So let's um, talk
0: about that. Let's talk about what it means to be a doctor of integrative
1: medicine. Yeah. So basically it's just a fancy term in that we're like integrating all that's out there because, you know, the more tools you have, the better. And what traditional medicine treats, hey, there is a time and place for traditional medicine, but there's also a lot of limitations. So in Western worlds, our medical system is basically built on triage. So you come in with a symptom we deal with the symptom, and we give you something to get rid of that symptom, without looking at, well, hey, what's causing that symptom, or like, mm-hmm. like let's not just put a band aid on something. Let's see if we can get to the root of the problem and really just get rid of it. But unfortunately, that our medical, our Western medical system has really been built on this triage. You know, give a band aid. You have a symptom. Take a medicine. Without really going like, okay, well, wait a minute you know, is that symptom. Maybe it's not just you're having reflux. Maybe you just don't have like, I I, I'm focusing on the, the, the GI track because I'm really into gut health right now, because we know that most of chronic disease really stems from what's going on in our gut. And then most Americans don't have a great diet. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I want to talk about that more. Yeah, me too. So, um, you know, so maybe you have reflux. Well, is it really like, all right. So you take an antacid. Well, is it an acid? Yeah. It's going to remove your symptoms, but what we don't realize it's doing is it's it's decreasing your stomach acid. And by decreasing your stomach acid, it's throwing off your whole microbiome and your microbiome are these happy little bacteria that live in your, your gut that keep you healthy elsewhere. Now, if you throw off your gut, like 90% of your immune system and your feel-good hormones are made in your gut. So now you're getting more sick and then you get sick and they give you antibiotics because, all right, you're sick. All right, let's give you some antibiotics. Well, now we're throwing the gut microbiome off more. So it's like, it's it's more of, so integrative is like, all right, first of all, let's look at all these systems and see what they're telling us, see if we can fix them and you kind of get to like really down to what's called like the like what's really causing it. And the other idea is integrating other areas of medicine because, you know, Eastern medicine, Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, there's things that they've, they're things that they've known for centuries that are way past what our, um, our knowledge of medicine in the Western world, you know, has understood. So incorporating other, areas of medicine, like acupuncture, meditation, you know, I think meditation yeah. is really, really kind of blown up and thank God it's become really big because you can't separate what's going on in the mind with what's going on in the body. And that, you know, we were saying just recently, I was saying that, you know, you could have the perfect diet and the perf- perfect exercise perfectly, but if you don't deal with the mind aspect and stress, you're not going to have a healthy body so there's so many so integrative is just like really just bringing everything in together to try to build build like ultimate wellness
0: yeah i've heard actually some md's sort of complain that um medical school doesn't really teach you an approach from an, like an interactive, integrative approach, approach, like what you're saying, but they were MDs. So I'm actually wondering if that your experience wasn't like that was your training. It was more focused on let's figure out what else is going on in the body. Let's not just give somebody a pill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, de- definitely. Like I, though, the only thing that i would say there was limitations with my training was in that new jersey we were all part of the same university system so i would have to take the same classes as the md's and then do my osteopathic classes on top of it so so it was really great during the actual um schooling part but then it kind of diluted down as we did our extensive training and it depended on who you had as your mentor yeah because um then once you got into the hospitals you'd have some you'd have some do mentors you'd have some md mentors and it kind of just depended on where things would go and then you know some schools are are heavier on, on things like like kirksville um is like the mecca of um of osteopathic training. Like that was the first osteopathic school and they tend to be a little bit heavier on the training when it comes to this integrative approach. So, so tell me what you encounter um, most frequently in your practice as a urogynecologist. You know, it's interesting. So as a urogynecologist and and it's changed over time because now that I'm doing the integrative medicine. So, um, when I first came out of practice, it was pretty much straightforward. It was incontinence. You know, you leak, if you cough, laugh, sneeze, or you're running to the bathroom every two seconds. Um, or it was for women, things droop and drop as we get older. And so that can happen to the bladder, the vagina, the rectum, especially women who've had babies. So that was really where my training was. And then it kind of developed over time. The more I started seeing patients, the more I realized that the tools that I had just really weren't Addressing things, and I got more into recurrent urinary tract treating recurrent urinary tract infections and treating recurrent vaginal infections, and even the surgeries that we had to lift things up and repair. I mean, a lot of people have heard or seen the commercials on TV for the vaginal mesh, and it's like Mm you know, the 1 800 bad drug, yes. Um, You know, I trained on mesh and it was really pushed on us. And it was like, all right, this is what we have to fix things. And at the time it was great because there was nothing else and we didn't have anything better. Um, What is
0: that? Can you explain what the mesh is? What what does it do? It's
1: actually, so it's a hernia mesh and it's kind of almost looks like it's very similar to you ever get a bag of fruit and it comes in that plastic bag. Yeah. It's very, very similar to that. in fact, they're they're both made out of something called polypropylene. So it's very similar to that. Because what happens is our pelvic, our pelvis is basically an open hole to to gravity. Because the only thing that's keeping things inside our body and our pelvis is the muscles on our pelvic floor. Because otherwise, our hip bones are all the way around and just, you know, your intestines, your blood. It's like a bowl. Yeah, everything just sit on there. So what happens over time, unfortunately, especially women who've had children, who have had babies, and you don't have to have had babies for this to happen, but especially women who have had babies, is they're... Over time, you can get like rips and tears in the ligaments that hold up the bladder, the vagina. So these things start to all collapse in on itself and they can actually start to bulge out. So the only way to really get things back up is in the past, they used to just like, okay, go in there, suture things, hold things back up. But you're you're taking tissue that already has a potential propensity to rip and tear and you're just sewing it back to each other so there was a high risk that that wasn't going to hold up so they developed this mesh to basically go lay in between like say if the bladder was dropping you would lay this mesh it almost act like a hammock and it would sit in between the bladder and the vagina and just basically reinforce it and keep it up where it was supposed to be. So, um So what what
0: happened? What went wrong? Why are there all these lawsuits now?
1: So the biggest problem was the process by which uh medical devices or medical products got onto the market with the FDA. And it wasn't like the FDA was being um you know, lax in their their Process. It just, this was something that developed over time. They never had any issues. You know, you would just apply to get a product and then after you go, okay, that looks good. Well, what happened was with them, and hernia meshes have been used for hernia repair since the 80s. So they just said, all right, well, if it's good for hernias, let's put it in the pelvic floor. But not realizing that when you have a hernia on your stomach, you have layers of skin, you have layers of fat, you have muscle. There's a lot of other things that are sitting on. On that, on top of that mesh to hold in your hernia. So, uh, and, and a prolapse in the vagina is, is a pelvic hernia. So, when they would implant these into the vagina, you only have a very thin layer of mucosa that separates where this what, where these meshes were placed, and you know this, this mucosa or skin on top of it. So, the problems they would see. And also your, your pelvis moves. You have the mm-hmm. filling of the bladder. You have the movement of the vagina during sexual activity. You have the movement of the rectum during filling with stool and, and emptying. So there's a lot of movement in the pelvis. Um, there wasn't a nice thick layer of tissue sitting on top of these meshes. The meshes themselves were probably abrasive. And so the problem we saw with the meshes that they would wear, they would erode meaning like they would wear into other organs or they would wear out of the body.
0: Oh and my God. So like, you could
1: literally, you could feel it, you know? Oh yeah. Sometimes you you could or... like, yeah. Sometimes I would like look in with a little speculum and I could see like a whole thing of mesh, like kind of coming oh. out at me. And so, um, you know, even well, and actually the worst thing was, was the, you know, probably had about a, looking at the literature, there was anywhere between a one to 17% risk of an erosion. Um, There were more women that it probably helped than it didn't help. But the people that had complications, it wasn't like, okay, you had a complication was minor. The people who had complications really had problems. And then there were some severe things that affected people's lifestyles. But what I saw as a physician that I really made me unhappy um, was that So 50% of women who've had children are likely to have a prolapse. And so these companies that made these devices realized that there was a very large market for Mm -hmm. this. You know, especially with women who are baby boomers, because it tends to, you know, women who got these implanted were anywhere from their twenties to their nineties, but the majority of these people fell in the age of the fifties, fifties to seventies. And, you know, with our baby boomers, there was a very, very large market. So overnight we, at one point had like 10 companies making these products. Now, what did these companies do? is they were like oh it's so easy to put these products in you know come to our weekend course and we'll show you how to do this mm. so you know here I went through a urogynecology fellowship so I spent 2 years learning how to work with this material where these companies were going straight to gynecologists who not didn't always have the perfect understanding of the pelvic floor. And I say mm-hmm. that because I used to teach these classes and I was surprised at um, some of the, the these doctors not having a full knowledge of the pelvic organs. Um, and they were like, oh, it's easy. You just put this stuff in and you can make money. And, and that's how mm. the, these companies really pushed it. So what I really think wasn't so much, the mesh was an issue it got better over time as the mesh developed. So the mesh and, you know, they made, they learned over time to make the mesh less abrasive. It was softer, but by then it was already too late because you had too many women that were implanted with this stuff by people who probably didn't really know exactly what they were doing. Um, And it just really, it just blew out of control and to where the FDA, when they finally stepped in, they, eventually took it off the market. Yeah, I
0: actually was going to ask you that
1: if it's still around. Is there any kind of mesh or
0: product like
1: that? Interesting enough, the vaginal mesh is off the market. Now, vaginal mesh is the mesh that's used to lift the bladder, lift the rectum. That's mesh that's placed in through the vagina to hold these things up. That's off the market. But the mesh that there's another mesh that's used made out of the same stuff, Put in the same places, but it's placed from above internally. And that's do, with a procedure usually called a sacrocopalpexy, which is just a fancy term from we're going to lift the vagina from the inside and attach, you create this artificial ligament, attach it to your, your tailbone. Um, that mesh is still on the market because the FDA is like, oh, wait, that's not the same mesh, but it is. Is that causing problems too? You know, not as much and partially because it's put in a little bit deeper so you don't see as many issues with it. And the other thing is the people that are, you don't have just anybody putting those in. You're usually somebody had extensive training because you're either putting it in laparoscopically or putting it in with robotic surgery. So, and then the other thing you hear a lot of people talk about the sling, which is a very small strip of mesh. It's probably like the width of my pinky that's placed under the urethra, the tube you pee through, and that's um, that's a vaginally placed mesh, but it's not vaginal mesh. That's only considered a sling, but some people get scared and they're like, oh, I had this thing put in me, am I gonna have a problem? Well, slings have been on the market since the late 1990s and there have been no, I mean, even though you can get an erosion with a, a sling, they haven't taken the slings off the market.
0: So it's not, is it not necessarily the mesh itself that's harmful? It's just the way that they were being implanted, if that's the right word. To yeah,
1: you. I think, you know, you know, with any, anything you implant in the body, there's always a risk it can come out. There's always risk it can wear into someplace else. I think what happened during the time of the vaginal mesh is that it was just the number of of these things that were being implanted. And so unfortunately, even in a perfect world, somebody does a perfect surgery, there's always risk, you know, there's always risk that something can happen, but you know, now you have like, instead of like maybe five doctors implanting and you see the, those risks going down. Now you have hundreds of doctors implanting this stuff because it was really pushed and promoted Because you have that many women out there with this, you know, there's that many women with these conditions um, that, you know, there was definitely a market for it. Um, Well, I still see
0: the commercials from the lawyers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Maybe you can tell us, is
0: there anything that we can do to prevent the kinds of... um, things that women were getting the mesh for in the first place
1: you know some of it is some of it there's not some of it there's not much you can do because some of it's genetics but um some of it is you know childbirth and uh, as long as people keep having babies they'll keep having these issues but I really think one of the biggest preventions is you know a healthy diet and lifestyle because if your tissue is in good shape You're more likely to heal. You're more likely to have strong tissue. I mean, we know that women who are smokers, I mean, you can go in and their tissue rips and tears so easily. It's very thin, very, very thin. Um, and And they just don't heal well. You know, the other thing is we do start losing muscle mass as we age. So starting in our thirties, our muscle mass like decreases. And by time we're like, you know, in our sixties, we can have muscle atrophy anywhere in our body. So the pelvic floor muscles, like doing your Kegels or doing strengthening is not going to necessarily prevent, um, it's not going to fix, it's not necessarily going to fix a prolapse, but making those muscles stronger, it can actually decrease the appearance of a prolapse so that maybe you don't need the surgery. And I think there also became a a big change in attitude and I know even in myself, I mean, when I trained, we would be like, oh, you have a prolapse, you need surgery. Oh, you have a prolapse, you need surgery. And then as, you know, I started seeing issues with the mesh and here, you know, these reports on issues with the mesh, I started going and really like addressing the patient and saying, well, like, all right, you have a prolapse, but is it bothering you? Like there are a lot of times we would find it and they didn't even know it was there or, or then honestly, I've had women who their vaginas turned inside out. I know. this. What is, on earth does that look like? Yeah. It <laughs> like a sock, like a sock that turns inside out because the vagina is just a tube. So it's mm-hmm. basically, it just turns inside out and then it's hanging now out of the body. And, you know, I would see that and you would think, oh my goodness, that's got to bother you. And I had some women that are like, no, it doesn't bother me. You know, I just They're obviously aware of it. Right. Yeah, I just push it back up from time to time or it's really not affecting my quality of life. So that's where I started getting to the point where I was like, all right, don't do surgery until it affects your quality of life. And that means, is it causing you another health problem or is it mentally bothering you? Because, you know, that. then I've had patients who like had something that was minor, but they're like, oh, like, it's really like, I'm obsessed with the fact that it's there. It's really bugging me. So like, I feel like that would bother me.
0: Yeah. And I, <laughs> there was a sock in my vagina. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's really where, and I kind of use that when it comes to anything now with any surgery, I tell people, you know, if it's affecting your quality of life, that's when you do surgery. You know, if it's not, then try conservative things. And, and so, for for example, for prolapse, um, you could do nothing. Um, you can do pelvic, your pelvic floor exercises, strengthen your pelvic floor. That may decrease some of the appearance. And then. The other thing is, you can go old school and use something called a pessary, and a pessary is a device that is actually placed into the vagina that holds everything up. And pessaries date back to like ancient Egypt. And I mean, no joke. And I don't recommend doing this at home, but <laughs> they used to use pomegranates and like put a pomegranate in the vagina to wedge in there, hold things up, or they used to use rocks. Or potatoes, which I do not recommend. (laughs) What we have nowadays is we have these little devices that are made out of silicone and they fold up and they almost like little, look like little saucers or a little disc and they fold up and they insert and they, they hold things up. Um, And then, you know, what I've really gotten into in the last couple of years is some is regenerative medicine. I mean, yes, nothing's as perfect in as, as a surgery to fix things, but here's the thing. Having surgery doesn't even guarantee you it's going to stay like that, so that's the other thing we used to think yeah. like, oh, you do surgery, we fix it, and you're good. No, like you have a surgery, you're at a higher risk of it dropping again because you already your tissue already has a propensity to rip and tear. So um, we're starting to use a lot more lasers to help regenerate the vagina. Um, Using what's called radio frequency with sound waves that produce heat that can go in there and shrink up the tissue and, and lift it. Uh, platelet-rich plasma, where we use our own blood to kind of spin down the this what's called platelet-rich plasma and inject it into that area. And it has l- growth factors and healing factors. And, and you can even inject stem cells. Um, you know, nothing's gonna get it as perfect as it was prior to the drooping and the dropping, but these are all there's tons of different options now out there to get it better without having to necessarily go to surgery. So, what
0: about these? Um, I forget what they're called, they're it's basically plastic surgery, like vaginal. Um, I can't remember what it's called, like rejuvenation surgery.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot it's, of times, well. A lot of times you can do that with lasers. Yeah, I remember there was a doctor in probably the early 2000s who actually uh, coined the term vaginal rejuvenation, and he actually got it uh, trademarked. And so nobody was allowed to use that terminology without paying for his course and going through his his procedures and stuff like that and there was nothing special about his course it was nothing any different than what the urogynecologists were doing anyway and and actually even though oh he it was laser vaginal rejuvenation was the name of his procedure and it didn't even involve a laser at that time so um but yeah a lot of so what 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 you are probably thinking about what we do have on the, on the market is these lasers and the radio frequency is they know that lasers, lasers have existed also since the 1980s. And they for cosmetic reasons is they know that the light energy from lasers, when it penetrates the skin, it actually causes a microscopic injury and your body responds to that. And like, Oh, it's I got to heal myself. And so what it does is it sends all these cells and growth factors there to heal, but while it's healing, it actually rejuvenates and all the tissue around it. And basically, and we can, what we can do with the lasers for, especially women who are postmenopausal after menopause, that vaginal tissue thins out very, very, very thin, becomes dry, sex becomes painful, um, and this is all from lack of hormones, but we can, with a laser, laser the vagina and actually return it back to the way it was when somebody had all their hormones, just with the power of light energy and not having to use any hormones, which is wow. a great advantage, especially for women who've had breast cancer. So, so let's talk about the
0: hormones because you and I have talked about that, but I'd like to talk about it on this show. Um So you said they could do the laser, uh, treatments.
1: Yeah. But could they also just get hormone therapy? Oh, sure. Sure. Especially like, well, hormones, there's a lot of different things. There's hormones for just general wellness and replacing the hormones that are generally in the body, or you can actually just use an estrogen cream or hormone cream specifically in the vagina, um, the problem is, I think, you know, and, the, and they work fine. And most of them are prescription. Some of the issues with the uh, vaginal estrogen products is not so much the hormones that they're using in those estrogen products, but actual some of the fillers. And some of the fillers that they use and the chemicals that they use, such as propylene glycol, are actually very irritating to the tissue. And so you get stuck in this, like your tissue is irritated, so you use these hormone creams. And then you're using this hormone cream with this irritant. So then you're using more of the hormone cream. So it becomes this vicious circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just what they use as some of these fillers in these creams. Um, But then a lot of people like hormones got a bad rap. Probably this was probably like the nineties when the women's health initiative study came out, which was a big study that looked at patients replacing their hormones and so they they actually stopped the study because there was an increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease in the women that were taking the hormones. And so everyone got scared of hormones and every like women came off hormones, doctors took their patients off hormones, everyone's like freaked out. You mentioned the word hormones now to some t- sometimes people, they're like, Oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. It causes, it causes yeah. cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a couple of things. They went back and they looked at that study and number one, it was done on women that were much older. So it could have been that based on their age alone, they had an increased risk of heart disease and breast cancer. So that's number one. Number two, they saw it only the, the, the real risk was in the women that were doing the combined hormones with estrogen and progesterone, not necessarily in the women that were just doing estrogen but the problem becomes if you have a uterus, you have to do estrogen and progesterone because the progesterone protects the uterus from get, developing uterine cancer. But on someone who's had a hysterectomy, they could do the, just the estrogen, they, they'd be fine. Hmm. The other thing was the type of hormones that were being used in that study. And they were synthetic hormones. And that's probably the biggest problem because we know that synthetic hormones aren't the same as the natural hormones that are made in our body. And what happens is they're metabolites of those hormones that can be cancer causing. And then you go, well, why are there these synthetic hormones on the market? Well, the way the FDA is, if you have something that's a natural component, it's not patentable. So you can't patent natural estrogen. So from a marketing standpoint and a business standpoint these companies were like, all right, well if I take something that kind of looks like estrogen and I kind of tweak it, now I have a new a new molecule and I can patent that, I can sell it, I can make a drug, I can now, you know, yeah, have my big pharma company. So yeah. that really is more was more of the issue is synthetic hormones and the toxic metabolites that happen with any of the synthetic hormones. But with that being said, people still are stuck in their head when it comes to hormone therapy. They think they have to get something mixed up by a um, compounding pharmacy for it to be natural or bioidentical. And that's not the, that's not true anymore. There're actually companies that have developed bioidentical hormones. Um, that they were able to patent, not because of um, the hormone was, was not patentable, but the delivery system was oh, very so clever. They, they made, they could patent it by making it into a spray or a gel so they could patent the delivery system and therefore make a drug. And then they have a product that they could come okay. out. On. So those are safe. Yeah, safer. Yeah, <laughs> okay. safer. Safe you know, for. I'm gonna say in general because you know everybody's different, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the the bioidenticals are a lot more are a lot better than the synthetic hormones. So. Well,
0: let me ask you this: uh, if I understood you correctly, there is some risk if you're taking estrogen and progesterone but you need the progesterone if you still have a uterus. So what do those people do?
1: Well, so here, well, if you do bioidentical estrogen progesterone, that's not as much of an issue because that was the other thing with the, with that study is the estrogen was synthetic and the progesterone they were using was synthetic. Okay. They react in the body completely different than if you're using bioidenticals. And you know, sometimes when you mention the word bioidentical, everyone gets all um you know up in arms because so they think of, oh God, who was a lady with the Kegel Master? The oh, uh, Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers. Yeah, people <laughs> think like, oh, because she was a big proponent back in the day of bioidenticals. So they're still like this, like, ooh, bioidenticals are like woo-woo. They're, you know, there's kind of crazy stuff. But really, we've come a long way even with the bio understanding of the bioidenticals and bioidenticals just that word just means it's the same kind of chemical that your body would have produced naturally versus synthetic hormones that these pharmaceutical companies are making.
0: So the synthetic ones, the, the, I'm not a chemistry person, but the, the chemical chain, there's something that's been tweaked, right? Something different. So these bioidenticals that you're talking about, Match what would normally be
1: in your body naturally.
0: But they're still manufactured, but the chemical chain is identical. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. Okay. Because yeah. I was going to ask you, where, where do we get natural estrogen? How, how do you do that? Is that you know, possible?
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, some of it is, are derived from like animal products. Some of it derived from like gams and things. Some of it are chemically synthetically made, but but they are the exact, like, shape as, you know, and in, in, um, organization as the ones that would naturally be in your body versus these these compounds that have been tweaked with, like, you know... The
0: Franken-hormones.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that, yeah. Yeah, okay. basically.
0: Something I want to um, talk to you about, because I know you have mentioned in the past, and I should tell people that you and I did a, a live stream of Wake Up Call and the title of it was Anti-Aging for Your Vagina, where we talked about some of these things. So if anybody really wants to get more details, you can go ahead to my Facebook page and watch that again. I'll put a link in the show notes. But I think you mentioned that people don't really do their Kegel exercises, right? So can you sort of give us like a tutorial right now on how to do a proper Kegel exercise?
1: Yeah, you know, it's hard because people like, I don't know what happens, but they often are pushing, like they're having a bowel movement instead of lifting and tightening. Mm. And so sometimes it's very difficult for people to figure out what to do you know i also have a lot of people that women that come in and they they do it while they're urinating because they've been told like they're the muscles that you use to stop your urine flow yes you do that long enough just to figure out what those muscles are you don't want to do it while you're urinating because if you're doing it while you're urinating and you stop your flow the bladder's still pushing and the urine's going to go where the least amount of pressure is and that could be up to your kidneys so if you need to figure out mm what muscles to use and that's how you want to like figure it out great but then go do it elsewhere but a good friend of mine explains it to his patients and he cracks me up every time he does it he's like pretend you're in front of the queen and you have to fart he's like the muscles you would be using to hold in that fart that so you don't fart from the queen those are the muscles so (laughs) basically you know the other thing is you think about like in the vagina if you can like think about like tightening and lifting up or then the buttocks you know the butthole if you're like trying to hold in gas (laughs) if you can like tighten and lift up and um you know I also tell people, you know what? Sometimes you don't might not still might not know what you're doing and if you're limber enough to like get a finger in in the vagina and like feel as you're tightening, you could feel the the vagina tighten around your finger. Now, there are some people who unfortunately, I mean because we don't that's not an area of the body that people think about exercising. You know, if you're doing your gym, you know, and you're doing your arms and your legs. You're not thinking this way about the vagina. It, it can, over time, get so weak where you might not even be able to tighten that. And so, working with either a pelvic physical therapist, and they're they're popping up all. They're more rare than a urogynecologist, but if you can find a pelvic physical therapist that can work with you and and teach you how to do these exercises properly, or even if you want to get a partner involved. Um, and then we also, I'm, I'm the gadget girl. That's why I have all these fun toys at my, my, my office. There's a product called the Umcella, which is a pelvic magnet chair. And it's absolutely amazing. You sit on it fully clothed. And the, every time the magnet contract, uh, like the magnet turns on, it makes your muscles contract. So it does your Kegel exercises at like 80 times what you're able to do naturally. So, um, so you just sit on, you sit on it and you can get your muscles back into tone. But, um, and then you can either keep doing it. forever and ever and ever. That's one way. Or I like to tell people, you know, use that as a tool just to get those muscles strengthened. And then, then you go home and now you start this, this like process of doing your Kegel exercises to keep them strong the other times. So
0: how often should people do this? Like for how long, how many, and then how long do you hold it when you do the, um, Holding the fart. (laughs)
1: Yeah. How long do you count to 10 or something? Yeah. I usually tell people to count to 10. There's different muscle fibers. There's ones where you can just tighten, 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 tighten to the count of 10 and then relax and do that 10 times. Or there's something called quick flicks, which uses a different type of muscle fiber. And quick flicks are where you go like tight, 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 tight. And you just do it like where you tighten and relax and tighten and relax instead of holding it. Do those. 10 times and then relax and then repeat that 10 times. But like with any exercise, you know, you're not going to go doing this all of a sudden like you know, every single day of the week. You you might not even be able to get 10 repetitions in even in that one sitting. But if you can do them and then, you know, maybe do even just 5 and do it 2 days a week and then do that for a couple of weeks and then try getting up to 10 2 days a week and then try getting to 3 days a week and like ideally if you can do it like any exercise if you could do it 5 days a week would be great so i mean it's not just good for holding in your urine because we do see that as people age that mm. overactive bladder where you just can't hold the, the urine in you have to run to get to the bathroom There are more people in their 70s walking around now that have an overactive bladder or urge incontinence than has the common cold. So, what is urge incontinence? Urge incontinence is like all of a sudden you're fine and then you're like, make way, I gotta go. And then you can't make it to the bathroom and it comes out. God, I hope so, I never. And have part that. of that is because of, you know <laughs> a weak pelvic floor, or or as we age, it h- harder to hold in stool, or harder to hold in, you know, in gas. Let me tell you, like those diaper companies, it's um, they're honestly, it's I remember the statistics, but it's like a multi billion dollar industry for adult diapers but there's so many things that we can do to prevent this and things that we can do starting like in our twenties and thirties, you know, cause that's when we're starting to lose this muscle mass or even women who've had babies, do you know, in France a woman has a baby and she's immediately put into pelvic physical therapy in the United States, you have knee surgery. You're immediately put into pelvic and you're immediately put into physical therapy, mm-hmm. but in the United States, you have a baby. All right, have fun with your baby. Nobody's doing any pelvic yeah, physical practically therapy. Practically have to go to work the next day. Yeah. You're not doing they're not doing any physical therapy for the pelvic floor. But one of the best things you could do is preventative things. Get yourself into with a pelvic physical therapist. If you don't have a pelvic physical therapist where you live, get in with a regular physical therapist because birth is an injury to the pelvic floor. And if you had an injury anywhere else in your body, you'd be doing physical therapy. Um Some of these lasers that I use, the lasers and the radio frequency and this magnet chair are great for post-baby recovery. And so usually, I mean, that's where women start having their problems a lot of times is, you know, right after Mm -hmm. this pregnancy and childbirth. And so if we spent more time women doing preventative things earlier in life, then they wouldn't be having these issues later in life. Yeah, well, let's
0: get the word out. Unfortunately, some people don't start worrying about those things until it happens, and they're
1: like, "Oh God,
0: my yeah, and vagina's
1: it, falling out." I mean, the nice thing was with the, so also for men and women. So that pelvic magnet chair is actually good for men and women, um, not just for incontinence, not just for holding the stool, but actually for sexual function. And there have been studies that show, you know, especially for the men, like with that magnet chair, they said that they can actually last longer um, with being able, you know, or even even just hold, even a hold on for men and women, hold on to their orgasms longer, have stronger orgasms. So doing your goals or taking the advantage of the the cella magnet chair therapy, you can actually improve your sexual function
0: too. So lots of good reasons to come to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not just the 50 year old crowd, you know? Well, yeah.
1: Now, Whatever. now.
0: So and let's I- talk a little bit more about the gut health stuff that you, you referenced. Cause I, I wanted, if, if do you have a, a little Oh, time? I got all the
1: time in the world. <laughs>
0: okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yes. because I know gut health is so important. That's something you and I have worked on and I really want other people to, at least start to think about it more. So what would be, you know, maybe the top three things or top few things that you would really like people to know about maintaining
1: good gut health? You know what? The biggest thing is stop eating processed foods. Mm. That's probably one of the worst things that, you know, the, the standard American diet is like the worst thing you can do for your gut health. And in return, that causes all these other chronic Diseases, and we know that pretty much everything has to do with your gut. I mean, in it was like 440 AD or something like that that Hippocrates said, Let food be thy medicine. I mean, it blows my mind that he knew this in like ancient Mm -hmm. Greece, and that you know what we eat really causes so many issues. And we know that sugar, dairy, gluten from breads. Those are the top three. If we can get rid of those in our diet, which, Hey, you know, this is a challenge for me too. Yeah. But if we can get rid of those things, we would get rid of the inflammation that we have in our guts. And then what happens with inflammation is that you get something called leaky gut. Where now, like food particles can actually leak into your system, and you're and it hypes up your immune system because it goes, wait, there's something that's not supposed to be here. And then we see people with autoimmune diseases. We see people develop di, you know, there's more problems with diabetes, more problems with heart disease. Um, now, say if you have leaky gut, now you're not absorbing the nutrients out of your food well, or even more so. I see people taking all these supplements. And you're not getting anywhere with them because you can't absorb them because your gut's inflamed. So, you know, I think the biggest things are stay, you know, eat non-inflammatory foods, which are going to be your lean meats, your fruits and your vegetables. You know, a Mediterranean diet is probably one of the best diets that you can eat, you know, minus any bread, sugar and dairy, like cut those out. All and the good stuff. I know. Cut those things out and you're good. Um, the other thing is 75 to 85% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. And so that also affects our gut, but that not just our gut that affects everything that it affects. First of all, for women, for us, it ages us terribly. Our, if our skin's dry, we have more wrinkles. So if anything, do it for beauty reasons, but you know, you want, get those kidneys working in there. You want that fluids going through the gut. Um, And the other thing we don't eat a lot of in the American diet is fermented foods, and there's so much science behind this, our gut microbiome, which is, you know, a um, biome is an environment of organisms. The microbiome is your, your small, these small environments in your stomach. Your stomach microbiome is different than your skin microbiome, which is different than the vaginal microbiome, which is different than mouth microbiome. And we found that there are bacteria that are supposed to be there for it to work healthy for it to for things to work well. So we really have to rely on um like have a symbiotic relationship with these other bacteria for us to be healthy. And we're killing off a lot of these bacteria because of these poor our poor diets. So eating more fermented foods, because back in the day we didn't have refrigeration. So humans ate more fermented stuff because that's how you were able to keep your food longer. What are some examples of some fermented food? You know, there's a big, there's definitely a big movement of fermented foods now. So it's so much easier to find it in the supermarket, but like, let's go with pickles, but you don't want to just get pickles that are on the jar that are sitting in that in the refrigerated section, because those ones are usually pasteurized and cooked and they killed off the bacteria. You want, pickles that have been pickled and usually the ones in the refrigerated sections are usually the ones that are not pasteurized. If they have a little bit of a cloudy fluid in there, it's usually because they're healthy bacteria in there. Same thing with sauerkraut. So sauerkraut, not that's in a jar, but like ones that you find in the refrigerated section, great like types of what's called lactobacillus, which are really Mm -hmm. healthy bacteria. You can find kombucha Almost anywhere now, and kombucha. If you haven't tried it, I love it. Some people don't, but it's a fermented tea product, and it's naturally it naturally uh, becomes very carbonated. You know, some people get worried about you know, oh, the sh- you know, sugar. Well, yes, if you read the ingredients on kombucha, it will say sugar, but you're usually very little amount of sugar that's left in it because kombucha is made by using tea, sugar and something called a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic colony of yeast and bacteria. And I actually make my own and it, it looks like kids call it the alien. It does look like this alien thing that you'd like throw in there. And it is a symbiotic colony of healthy bacteria, healthy yeast that grows on the, this tea as it ferments and it becomes naturally carbonated. And it has a lot of, a lot of great health benefits. Um, What about yogurt? You know, yogurt. See, I still, even though I tell people no dairy, I still am okay with yogurt as long as they don't have a food sensitivity to yogurt. But the problem with yogurt can become is really the only ones that are really healthy are probably the ones like plain yogurt. Because a lot of the yogurts that are flavored with fruit, if they don't have sugars or corn syrups in them, which Mm -hmm. are a no-no they will take concentrated fruit juice with concentrated fruit juice in there is not not much different than than sugar and corn syrup so you know yeah. you're better off either making making yogurt is really easy but if you don't want to make it you buy plain yogurt and sweeten it yourself it's like you know get stevia put fresh fruit in it mm-hmm. so you're much better better off you're better better off with that same thing with um Kefir is a yogurt type drink uses different kind of bacteria than, than yogurt. Cause you know, I used to think it was just watered down yogurt, but it's actually a whole different organism that's used to make the kefir. So
0: I have a friend who drank that one time and she was in the bathroom for like two days. So <laughs> if you're not used to eating this stuff, yeah, you have to be a little careful about implementing it into your diet.
1: Yeah, I would always say people go slow, too, because, (laughs) yeah, because I – let me tell you, it's funny because I've done the same thing. I was like, I'm going to eat fermented foods, and I went out and bought everything, and, like, you can't go from, like, zero to, like, eating everything. Plus, you know, you want to make sure people have food sensitivities. You want to make sure, like, anytime you're introducing something new in the diet – try it maybe for a week before you tr- try something new or like, you know, do a little bit of it and, you know, not go trying every single fermented food that's on the face of the earth. Yeah. So. Um, I, another example I've heard is miso. Oh yeah. Miso is good though. Miso is fermented. Um, it depends on how you get it. Sometimes they don't have actual live bacteria in it. So, you like mm. some of the, the fermented things that really have the live bacteria are the better, like the yogurts or the, the kefir and the um, uh, the sauerkrauts, the pickles, um, kimchi, um, yeah, what about I tell, sourdough bread. Yeah, you know what I was gonna <laughs> say if you have to eat bread, like, and that's the other thing, I'm like, you know, you gotta live. If I if you do if you live healthy 80% of the time and 20% of the time, you, you know. You, you indulge, you're fine. But if you're going to eat bread, sourdough is better because of the process by which it's made. Um, the process by which it's made is typically they're using what's called wild yeasts. So they're not using these fast acting yeasts. And the, when you make regular bread, you're using these fast acting yeasts are usually one strain of yeast where sourdough is actually made by, sticking flour and water out until it starts to ferment. And yeah, then, I've actually
0: made sourdough bread before. I
1: just did it myself recently. It was actually, it was, it was fun. Um, and so you're getting the natural yeasts, and you're usually getting more than one yeast. So usually anything, especially when it comes to probiotics is the more different types of varieties of bacteria and yeast you can get into your system, yeah. usually the better. So when you
0: say um, processed food, you know I think Twinkies, (laughs) like basically anything. I mean, obviously Twinkies, but I think sometimes people don't realize that there's something that can seem healthy, and I'm saying that with finger quotes. That's not because I'll, for instance, I'll see a lot of these nutrition-minded people will find all this stuff at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, and it's in a box or a bag. And they're like, oh, but it's healthy.
1: And, but to me, what I think is, but it's still processed. Yeah, I I agree. I really, you know, somebody said this to me once that like the healthiest foods are the foods that they consider ingredients, like foods that you can make other foods out of because, you know, like I know it was really big with these these burgers, these veggie burgers. I don't even yeah. know what they call them. The impossible, burger, burger impossible burger and all that, yeah. Everyone's like, it's made out of vegetables. Yeah, but it's processed. Yeah. And and you know what? Part of it, which I can't believe people are like, but it's healthy. It's vegetables. They actually modify it. It, And it's almost like genetic modification. They modify the food with a heme molecule. And heme is like what we have in our blood. And heme Mm -hmm. is in muscle and stuff like that. So they modify the molecule with this heme molecule. So that's why it tastes like meat and it's not meat.
0: So it's basically
1: like lab created beef made out of plants, which is not any health. Just go eat some plants. Like just go eat some vegetables. You're much better off. You know, yeah, I've seen
0: I saw a documentary or news program uh, about before it got really got big and they were developing it and they made something where it looked like a burger and it looked like a rare burger, like you would push on it and look like you know the bloody juices were coming out and it was really freaky
1: yeah i mean given the choice between that and a real burger i think yeah. i would go for the real burger because i'm yeah. like okay at least i know that's coming from account it hasn't been like lab created and modified but but i mean the biggest thing is you know pro- processed foods like you know we're living in a day and time where it's just easier to buy things that are pre-made but um yeah. I mean, like, obviously chips are definitely processed foods, you know, yeah. breakfast cereals are processed foods. Um Well,
0: I've heard people say, you know, if you, if you can't pick it off of a tree or a bush or pull it out of the ground, it's, it's processed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Well, I have
0: been following your advice. I've been eating gluten-free. I did cheat a little bit over the weekend, but I will say I noticed a difference. I had whole wheat toast And I felt bloated like that day, like pretty quickly. And it really was noticeable to me. So I think you're onto something there with the gluten. Um, We determined that I have a gluten sensitivity, Um, which is kind of funny to me because I always thought, oh, I don't get all these people that have this gluten problem. When did (laughs) gluten become the enemy? Um, so I guess I've been uh, reformed there
1: you know with the gluten like even with the sense if you have a sensitivity you know having something like that every once in a while is not a bad thing but people will notice if you're eating it on a more frequent basis you may have more health problems whether that's joint aches and pains bloating constipation or diarrhea Mm -hmm you know, yeah. swelling. Like I was just, it was funny cause I just did my own stool testing and um, I was going over it with the lab cause they, they have this consultative service. And I was like, let me go over with them officially, see if they have anything new that they can say about it. And we were looking at my testing and I was like, look down and all of a sudden I'm like, my, my gluten, my sensitivity to gluten was actually within a normal range but it was on the high end of normal and where I probably would have normally like blown that off. Like, Oh, it's still normal. And the the woman in the, at the uh, lab was like, no, 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 we really want that number under 50. So they're like, you're on the edge of having a gluten sensitivity. And I, I thought to myself, so I, I did make sourdough bread recently mm-hmm. and I've been eating a lot of it. Cause I'm like, all right, I want to use it up. And no joke. I've had the worst knee pain this week. Wow, really? Because my joints have been swollen and I'm like, yeah, it's I've been eating a lot more bread than I have in a long time. I'm like, that explains it. So, yeah. I I
0: will say though, it's been hard. I've found it much harder to eliminate the dairy completely. I've had a lot less. I've been having coffee with cream. I it's, I must have a serious addiction to coffee because I, it's been so hard to eliminate that, but I've been foregoing cheese and my salads, and I like to make little burrito bowls and I would love to put cheese in them, but I've been foregoing that. And, um, I do feel better.
1: That's great. That That's definitely great. I know. And like I said, you know, I tell people go to the 80, 20 rule because The problem is, in general, especially like anybody who's following a diet, whether it's for health or for weight loss, the moment you're like, "Oh, I can't eat that. That's bad," you actually create this uh, subconscious reward system in your brain. So Mm. I'm like, you know, if I say like, "Oh, I'm never eating chocolate again," it's bad. You know, what what happens when you tell like a teenager, "Don't do something"? Yeah, what are they gonna do? They want to do it that's what your subconscious wants to do. And you, you know, find yourself like, I want chocolate. I want chocolate. I want chocolate, you know? And you start like, you start obsessing about it. Mm. And then you finally go like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. You, like brain, you can't tell me what to do. You know, you don't want to tell what to do. So you have these little internal conversations and you're like, I'm just going to, I deserve it. And then you eat that chocolate. And then all of a sudden your brain it's like fireworks. All these endorphins go off in your brain, and you're like, you know, hear the angels, like, ah, oh, yeah, yep. chocolate. So now you've you, it feels good because now you've produced this endorphin rush because you did something bad, and you get this endorphin rush. And now you set up this reward system because your body just got rewarded for doing something bad, so it makes you want to do it again and again and again. So they they say like, don't label those foods as bad. Don't be like, oh, I'm never going to eat that ever again. Be yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to eat that someday. But right now, I'm just going to kind of cut back, and you know, maybe on the, this weekend, I'll have a little bit as a reward. And then you know, some people then just actually don't even want it because they haven't, you know, cut it out altogether. So, yeah, I
0: think you're onto something there because I, it's been a lot easier for me to forego the gluten products and dairy and, you know, chocolate. I love chocolate, but I don't feel like I've been cutting it out because, oh, I can't have it. It's the forbidden fruit. It's really because I know now that if I eat it, I'm not going to feel well. Yeah. And I'm going to have to get bloated or have other symptoms. And I just don't want to deal with it. So just that change right there has made it a lot easier. I don't really feel like I'm missing out on something.
1: It's amazing like how much different you feel when you've cut those inflammatory things out of the diet. And because you might not have known you felt crappy, or like oh, maybe I just didn't feel right. But then you're like, man, I really felt crappy. Like, I here's one thing I'm guilty of. Like, my family always gets pizza on Friday nights, and yeah. I'm always like, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna. And then I <laughs> anyway. But I will tell you, probably like clockwork, Saturday, my knees are killing me. My I'm puffy. I'm like swollen and i know it's probably a combination of the dairy and the gluten yeah so now i'm trying to get to the point where i'm like okay well maybe instead of doing it every friday you know maybe i'll get like a minestrone soup you know so i can get that you know that tomatoey stuff while they're having their pizza but maybe i'll have pizza like once a month or maybe yeah. you know, i'll start with twice Well, I'll go twice a month i don't want to go cold turkey <laughs> yeah
0: i know who doesn't love pizza good pizza yeah yeah, yeah. um i actually made a homemade pizza with gluten free pizza dough which sounds totally disgusting but it actually was good
1: there was also, and now this is, this is a processed food, but I have to say yeah. it was actually really good. I don't remember the brand. They made a pizza, but the crust was chicken breasts, but they had pounded the chicken breast so flat. It was like a frozen, it was a frozen pizza and they pounded it so flat that they made that because it was supposed to be fitting into like that paleo keto type of diet. Yeah. Or even, I have even I haven't tried it, but there's also those, um, cauliflower crusts that you can have the pizza and and some people tell me that those are really good I I like the cauliflower rice I've been using I haven't had that
0: I haven't had that which
1: is nice because you don't have to make it anymore you can buy it frozen like we used to make it and it was a pain in the butt so
0: yeah well I found something else too called um the brand is outer Isle. And they make these sandwich thins, and then they basically make a bigger version of that where you can make like a little pizza with it and it's gluten free. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah, it's really not bad. I mean, you know, it's not pizza, but it's, it's pretty good. You know, if you're trying to be good, it's an, a good alternative. So Dr. Betsy, thank you so much. You know, I feel like I can take care of my gut and my vagina properly now. So thank you for that. I'd love to have you on again. I feel like there's no shortage of topics to talk about with you.
1: I know. I have fun to,
0: <laughs> it's so much fun talking to you too. So likewise, thank you so much. And before we go, I'd like you to share with our listeners how they can reach out to you if they're interested in um, working with you.
1: Yeah. So if you're in the New Jersey area, come take a look at our website. It's Greenleaf Be Well, and that's G-R-E-E-N-L-E-A-F and B E dot com, so you can see all that we offer there and it's also great because you can book an appointment 24 hours a day you can just go go straight through there so that's you know where i would send you also i have some of your parts podcast um, and actually, I didn't, I don't know if I told you, I actually have a new show called Body, Mind, Spirit that's on WITV7.org. Nice. And streaming on Wednesday nights at uh, eight o'clock and you can catch the uh, replay and the podcast the next day through wytv 7org
0: Great. That's awesome. You are yeah. really making the most of your media opportunities, I see. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. And um, we're going to see you again, Dr. Betsy. I know it.
1: All right. Thank you so much. It's been an honor.
0: Thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com and be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to doing basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media, look up Wake Up Call the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call, or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.